Hello. Welcome, everyone. I am Phil Svitek, joined alongside, as always, by Marissa Serafini. We are two book lovers that love talking about novels. And so here we are in our monthly discussion. We've done a number of these so far, but this month we have the privilege of talking about Ian McEwan's Saturday. And uh, for those unfamiliar with Ian McEwan, he has written things like Atonement, most notably, um, which most people probably know the movie, not the book. But hey, if you love the movie, you like the book. Um, but of course, we'll dive into all of that. Um, I want to start with overall thoughts, but uh, also want to kind of forewarn everyone that we will be getting into the nitty gritty of the book. So we will be spoiling it, um, which, of course, you're welcome to join us for that. Uh, if you don't mind spoilers or, hey, pause, read the book and come back. Either right. way, your choice. So, Marissa, overall thoughts on Saturday. Um, honestly, I, I was excited to read it because, you know, I've seen, I've never read Ian McEwan, but I've seen Atonement and On Cecil Beach, both movies. Um, so I've seen his, you know, uh, pictures, the, the formal, you know, movies, um, but I've actually never read him. So I was excited to read him. And honestly, it, it took me a while to get into the book. Um, it, it took me a minute to like warm up to Henry Perone and and like as we're following this protagonist day, uh, it's very very over detailed and, and stuff. And you're just following this man's journey for the day. It took me a while to get into it, um, but overall, like it's I would say this book is more of an experience. We're kind of like witnessing what's happening rather than being able to do anything or really have a lot of thoughts, I guess you can say. But uh, overall, yeah, um, I I mean, I don't want to start start off by saying I didn't enjoy it, but uh, it, it took a process to get through it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's very much the thoughts are laid out for you. I mean, it takes place over the course of saturday as is promised by the title and you're very much in his thoughts now it's not a first person book it is written in third person but it says you know you're kind of right there it's present tense and it's a post 9 11 book um, which is kind of an interesting aspect of it um, where you know everyone's sort of on edge both good and bad about you know what's happening how they should interpret stuff um and so that's a big aspect of it and uh yeah it, it is kind of a slow start uh you know you slowly build and at first things happen that you don't quite know why they're happening and you know well, we can talk about how successful it is by the end of it but it is kind of one of those that things do tie up in some sort of fashion by the end um, if nothing mm -hmm. else the book starts with him having sex and it ends with him having sex so <laughs> you know it's a good bookend, for sure. <laughs> uh, for sure. And, you know, it's part of it's, it's a, you know, I think maybe, let me know if this resonates with you. It's, he's very clinical, right? The, the author, mm -hmm. the, the author's main character is a neurosurgeon, and he had done extensive research into all of that um, to make sure he got it right. And because... Henry sees the world through that lens, everything becomes very stilted and cold. Would you say that's an accurate description? I would say so. Um, 
very rarely did we see a lot of human emotion from him. Um, I, I'd say because he's, we'll, we'll get into it, but he's put it into different situations where it would elicit different human emotions like anger or being afraid and certain things that you have this full range of emotions. And I think because he is so clinical, he just thinks of it as black and white and he doesn't react as a human. He acts reacts more as a, I don't want to say robot, but um, just very like not emotionally connected, which was me as a reader, hard for me to connect to him as a human being. Yeah. And, you know, we get many glimpses into moments of him having to be a neurosurgeon, right. And perform surgery um, as he's thinking about it. Right. So it's all just kind of re recollection. And the, the few times that he does have emotion, certainly I think the biggest one first time around is when he's playing, um, you know, squash with, <laughs> um, with, with his coworker <laughs> and like, you know, that's kind of genuine anger where he's losing and he's like, okay, I gotta, you know, pump myself up. And he, then he comes back and it ends up being a pretty fair set um, only for him to lose on a technicality and he didn't want to make a fuss of it, you know? So right. outwardly he's somewhat suppressed his emotions, but internally <laughs> it was the first time he actually felt anything. Yeah. And, and it really goes to show just the, the over detailed um, aspect of Ian McEwen's writing in this particular book um, we spend like 15 full pages on a freaking squash match and um, as like as a reader you're wondering could this have been condensed uh, but it does take us through the process of his his internal struggle um, but uh, not showing and just at the end, I would be more mad. Like, you're an athlete, I'm an athlete. Um, when we put that much effort into a game and trying to win, and then it ends up not going our way, we're going to be emotional at the end. And he was just like, he just brushed it off. He was like, okay, yeah, you got this one. Good job. And I was like, mm, okay, mate, congrats to you for being calm, cool, and collected and taking a loss like that, but Again, there are just so, so many times where I wanted him to show emotion, the proper emotion, and he didn't. Well, I think that's the interesting aspect, right? He is grappling with his mortality, let's say, right? I mean, he's not old, but he's getting to that point where his kids are certainly going out into the world. Um, and in the backdrop of this 9-11 world, you know, his sort of stance is very much that neutral, like, well, I don't know. It's more complicated than that. And, you know, that comes to a head with his daughter, Daisy, <laughs> where she's very progressive and being like, you know, and I, I think I, I think there's that aspect to it all where you always have this younger, perhaps naive generation who are idealists. And not that they're not wrong, but, you know, in many ways, it's like, without that experience, they don't know the levers to pull, uh, you know, to create the change necessary. And he sort of kind of, you know, felt that where like the rah, rah, rah aspects of life can be better. And, you know, life in a sense can beat you down if you allow it. And that's what kind of it feels like for him. He's been there. So, you know, whereas before in his younger years, he might've like made a fuss over th this match, but it's like they play every weekend you know, it's just another win or a loss in the column. You know, for him, it's about the exercise and 
just keep it moving. Right. Right. And I think it, it goes to show that he's at this point in his life where um, he picks and chooses his battles and a lot of things he understands, oh, this is how I should react or this way. And like, th this isn't going to be a big deal. This isn't going to affect my life in two days from now. So why even bother now? Um, so I, I get that. And especially, uh, do you see the differences between him and his his children and the personalities wise? And there's that uh, cultural, I shouldn't say cultural difference, but just like you said, the generational difference that separates him and how the younger generation thinks and how they're affected, especially in a post 9-11 world where adults back then would have a very clear cut understanding of my what might be happening in the world compared to young kids who don't know how this actually affects them and will affect them. And now that we are 20 plus years past 9-11 that has happened since we're talking about this, you know, now we know how it affected our world, but these kids don't yet. Yeah. And it is also very interesting. Like he's kind of in the middle of all of this where you have in particular the daughter um, and then you have his father-in-law, um, you know, his, his wife's father, who never really approved of him particularly, um, which is strange because he's a neurosurgeon. And then, um, you know, he's he was the one who pushed Daisy into becoming a poet. And so it's a very interesting twist because normally you would have, you know, the the elders sort of being like, no, you need a sensible job, not, not the... Uh, carefree artist lifestyle so to speak you know yeah. and it's funny that that just kind of gets flipped on its head yeah. yeah and sometimes like i i see that and there's also generational differences between maybe it skips every generation where grandfather was more supportive of having a more you can say unstable career opposed to writing as opposed to, you know, medicine and stuff. So, but also maybe that is just a testament of Henry's character that he is too clinical, that he can't be creative in that sense. So he doesn't under he does understand or connect with writing in the way that his father could. And I think that's why the grandfather and the daughter um, had a better relationship than the daughter and the father. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, speaking of skipping that generation, right, you know, um, his wife, Rosalind, um, you know, it is her dad who's the poet, and, and her, she's a lawyer, right, so it does essentially skip both Henry and and his wife, and goes on to Daisy, and uh, even Theo, the, the son, um, for as clinical as Henry ends up being, I think what's nice I think two things come into play. He's always had like this respect for Theo. Um, but now hearing him play, it's like, wow, he's actually really good. Right. So there's an mm -hmm. abuse of that. And by the end, I think he sees both of his children no longer as children, but actual adults. You know? Yeah. He, he gets to that point where he can now respect his children because it, Henry might have thought at once is maybe it's just passion, you know, this, this could be a phase that they're, they're just trying out because they are so young and people in their teenagers, 20s, heck, even 30s, whatever, like people are just discovering what they like. And it, 
and that could be in coming into a budding career. But to see being such a successful neurosurgeon and then to see your kids going into an art form, like being a musician, being a writer, things that aren't always stable, um, I, I can see his hesitance there. But then when he sees both of them actually portray their art, he's like, oh, no, this is more than just passion and, and just a job for them, you know? So he, he gets to that level of respect, despite what they had to get through for him to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it's even a little bit deeper than that, where, you know, neither of us are parents, but I imagine, you know, you you want to be able to do anything for your kids. And, and the fact that they're getting into this realm um, where he has no knowledge of, he feels utterly useless, right? Uh, and so all he can do is kind of support and have faith which is very difficult for him because he can't even, you know, do that for himself with like, you know, politics, with everyday stuff. In fact, let's take a quick, I, I want to kind of start at the beginning with this plane, right? Um, McEwen writes very much kind of sticking to history, right? So I didn't all of a, a sudden expect like a terrorist attack in London, but mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it's not like I'm that familiar with, you know, the day you know, of, of the protest there. So I was just kind of wondering, you know, what was going through your mind as, because we were pretty much there, what he's thinking, we're thinking, we don't get more information than that. So what did you think of when the plane initially? Right. I think because of our current generation that have lived through 9-11, and especially when, you know, the the time frame that he's writing this story, it the, the whole, any plane that's in flames in the air, we're automatically going to think 9-11. It's just, just in the zeitgeist of what you know, the world is thinking then. So, and we know that there have been also terrorist attacks in Europe. So, and I, I think that's just the unfortunate culture in which we in, we're so conditioned that, oh, we see, we see something like that. We're just going to go straight to terrorism. And it's, it is terrifying. Um, so I was like, oh, no, is, is it going to be that kind of book? Not knowing <laughs> what the premise was going into this. But I was like, OK. But he kind of he the way that he writes the plane going down and then like no one really believes him. And it, it could have been all the past books that we've read, too, recently. It's like, it was, is he just imagining it? Is it also a fantasy um, so again, I didn't, not knowing his writing style, I didn't know if he was actually imagining it or if this was actually based on like a real event in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in that sense it is, but it does capture that, um, you know, you don't know. Um, and certainly, I mean, the, the question that it poses, like, should essentially the UK go and support america's war um and things of that nature right and he's very much like well maybe we should <laughs> you know? yeah whereas his daughter is very much like no and you know in the backdrop of all of this and kind of what messes up his entire day is the the huge amount of protests which is one of the biggest protests um i mean that that's an aspect of it that i remember is just seeing not just London, but in general, worldwide, how much people were opposed to this war. Um, and yet, it didn't seem to matter. <laughs> right. And it's, um, we know just from history that America, 
you know, North America, United States is, um, has had a very tumultuous relationship with Britain and the UK. I mean, heck, we split from them, hence the whole independence. But we know when 9-11 happened, the first country to respond was Britain. They are our ally, whether they like it or not. And, uh, uh, you know, America has helped Britain back in World War II and, and all the past wars. So, like, yeah, there, there's a love-hate relationship between our countries. We know that. But um, and I think that goes to show with these two generations, the father and the kids, where the father was like, yeah, we should. And the kids are like, no, we shouldn't. So, again, with the whole duality of should we help? Should we not? Um, yeah, I, I think that's very much the reflection of what the whole world was thinking back then, too, because right now it affected America, but it didn't affect Europe at that time. So yeah. should we get involved? Yeah, now almost the reverse is true, where you have the war in Ukraine and, you know, where Hamlet could be involved and stuff like that. But that's um, that's, uh, that, that's uh, too much to get into at the moment. So let's take right. it a second. Um, I want to add, so, you know, speaking of the protest, right, you know, he starts off his day, um, things of that nature, gets it moving, and, you know, he doesn't really account for the traffic. And I think what's interesting is there's almost a sense of, like, no good deed goes unpunished, or there's always, a, you know, gray area to helping, because, you know, someone lets him through so he can essentially get to a squash match on time. Um, and be, But because of that it ends up where, you know, he gets into this accident and that's what really kicks off like the main part of the story, really, that we don't mm -hmm. quite know is the main part of the story. Uh, we just think it's like random happenstance events, but um, you know, that's when he meets Baxter and his thugs. And so I want, yeah, like your initial sort of that confrontation, what did you think about it? Where do you think it was headed? I mean, yeah, whenever you're in a car accident, <laughs> you're going to be like initially upset when that happens. Um, but maybe it's just being in a populous area, a big country, like we're in the mindset that like, okay, this is a complete stranger. We're probably never going to see them again. You know, like let's be mad or upset with them in the moment. But then at the end of the day, probably again, we'll never see them again. So he, he didn't really like think of it in that way like oh he could be a problem in the future no and i think us readers are conditioned to be like okay this is just i don't want to say throwaway character but just this is just another random person he's meeting throughout the day yeah and there's that aspect of it again he he is questioning himself again of like should i have done what i did because he he plays on baxter's um, disease which is huntington's disease um, and he uses it to his advantage as opposed to, you know, kind of helping. And I don't know, uh, you know, call it the law of attraction. <laughs> it certainly comes back to him where like, well, now you get to, uh, now you get round two, buddy. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting how he handles it because being a doctor, a neurosurgeon, um, he has like actual experience of how to handle patients with a mental disease and compared to a regular civilian if this happened to anybody else i don't think the outcome might have been the same uh so it i don't want to say it was fortunate it was him but it is also 
fortunate and maybe coincidental that it happened to a neurosurgeon. So it, it kind of worked in his favor a little bit. I mean, yes, not like, I think that's the crux of it where he is, he is very much, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, he's a resistant hero where even then, like he just does the bare minimum to get out of the situation. But I, I think his big crux is like, you know, he's inactive. He doesn't know what the right choice is. And he, and so the second time when, the, you know, his wife is accosted and, you know, there comes Baxter. Even then he struggles. Like, I mean, I, I really want to dissect these moments, especially with the daughter, but just for now, even seeing all of this, like it takes so much to spur him into any sort of action, you know, anything he could do, do to avoid doing anything. It seems like he's willing to like do and, and that's it. But you know, yeah, man, it, it, there was a high threshold of him to do anything. Oh my gosh, it was so frustrating. And I gotta say, I personally train in self-defense. God forbid I'm ever put into a situation like this. I would like to think I know how to handle it. Or if I would know a move that could help submit the person whoever's doing this to me. And, and I understand... We, we can assume he has like none of that experience. He's just trying to comply with whatever's to make sure that like no violence, it doesn't escalate to violence. Nothing happens. Just like, let's just go with it. Let's meet his, his request and maybe we'll be okay. If we just do what he wants us to do, he, he won't kill us. Um, so, but as a person who actually trains, I was like, oh, I would so punch him or attack him or do something that would help protect my family, help protect myself. And this guy was just so calm that I was like, no, you are the father. You are the patriarch of this family. You need to do something. You need to actually do something about it. And he was just not doing anything. It was very frustrating. It was. And, and that's very much deliberately contrasted by, you know, his daughter, who's in a very shameful position. Um, you know, I mean, she, she's forced to strip down naked. And yet even in those moments, um, she does not relent her power. She complies, mm -hmm. but she does it in a rebellious way and she uses it to her advantage, you know, um, where they're just very much thrown off that she does it in such a, like just the way she does it, right? And then it manages that to then you know, lead into her having to read the poem and things of that nature. And, you know, that's what essentially disarms them. It wasn't Henry that caused this. It was it was her just leaning into it. Right. It was a mental disarm in that way. And I got to applaud Daisy. I mean, good job, girl. Um, because, you know, we know just the, the actual act of stripping down and like making putting her in a position where she's vulnerable, like literally naked, almost naked. Um, like that's a that's a power game. It's a power move. We know that. And the fact that yes, she is now the most vulnerable state, but mentally she was stronger than these guys um, or this guy. And I was like, good on you, girl. Um, even though you're in a very terrible position compared to everybody else right now, very unfortunate she had to go through. I'm glad that she didn't relent. Um, and I think that's a testament to her. Her mental strength, because a lot of 
a lot of this book with a lot of mental games here and there, like who's stronger. And in the end, like she prevailed and good yeah. for her. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, there's not only the aspect of like victim and, um, uh, you, you know, victim and whoever, but she's got her family there. Right. So like, there's also just the, the shame of like you as an adult person, like literally just being naked in front of your brother, your mom, your dad, and your grandfather. Um, right. And yeah, that, that takes a lot of resilience to be able to, to do that. Um, what did you think of, um, you know, they include the full poem that is read at the end of the book. Um, and I sort of, I did read it. Um, I don't know, it's interesting. Like, it's one of those things, you like, you know, when you ever watch like comedy, um, mm -hmm movie and in it there's like a stand-up comedian and it like they sometimes say these jokes and the audience laughs the audience in the movie but they're not really that funny so you're not like so i'm not saying it's to that level but it was i don't know i wasn't as moved as baxter perhaps was and maybe if it was a movie and i saw saw daisy like really give it the emotion that you know her as a poet could evoke in reading it then maybe it would land it better but that was a moment i was just like okay i get it in theory but it's not hitting you know <laughs> right here in the heart maybe you were just not in the mental space that he was that baxter was in that moment um yeah have, no <laughs> right exactly um yeah i think that's the thing with poetry it's uh -huh. like just like writing you know it's very subjective to whoever is reading it sometimes like you and I, we could read this. I was never like the biggest fan of poetry myself. Um, so it didn't hit with me either. Um, but maybe with this guy in the fragile state that he was, um, maybe it emotionally connected to him in a way that only he could understand a, a struggle or something of this poem that's like, yeah, you know what? That resonates with me personally and the internal demons and struggles I'm going through right now. So it was just enough for him to calm down enough where they can like submit him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, you know, I think finally he does take action, um, speaking about Henry, um, because of all this escalation, right? Like, as I said, the bar for him to do anything was so high. The grandfather tried, Theo, you know, and Theo and him were kind of making eye contact. Um, and that was like, okay, I don't need to see any more people try to do anything like let me be the one to to step up and so he goes with the plan um it's kind of been brewing in his mind about like hey um i can help you right and he ends up lying <laughs> unfortunate you know and, yeah. and it's interesting how that still like has a huge weight on him like um how do you think like this whole we'll call it an episode even though that's probably a terrible term for it um you know it sort of wrapped up where you know they, they hit him down the stairs so to speak the police comes they're taken away and that's the end of all of it how do i feel about it yeah like the, as, as it like you know as, as, as it, it progressed yeah right um i i mean i do have to maybe it wasn't the smartest idea to get henry isolated but i understand the the logic behind it is like if i take him away from my his my family he won't hurt them 
um, he could hurt me, but like, I'm okay if he hurts me, but not my loved ones. So uh, I got, uh, I was worried for him. I was like, now he's taking him upstairs. Now it's isolated. Now it's like, we're escalating to one-on-one. -on -one. We don't know what's ha what's going to happen. So um, I applaud him for doing that. So bravery, he gets kudos for bravery. Um, what upset me though, was after the fact, when he gets thrown down the stairs, he gets injured and then he gets called to the hospital. He's like, yo, you're the best doctor to handle this. And he doesn't even say that this, like, this was my family. This guy just tried to attack. And, and like, I understand being a doctor. Sure, you have a job. But also as a father, as a parent whose family just went through a traumatic event, you should stay there and be with your family. Not go off and do your job and save this guy who just tried to kill all of you. Just, um, I was very upset for Daisy. She had the most traumatic experience out of all of them. And not once did he stay home, be like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm going to stay with you. Make sure we're, like, we're going to get through this as a family. No, he immediately left them. And then he came back after the surgery. And then, like, it didn't seem like they ever really sat down and talked about it. Like, how is this going to affect us? Are we okay as a family? And the, and the family was like, yeah, okay, we're, we're here. No! Oh, my God. I wanted to shake him. I was like, "It, God forbid you're ever put in a situation like that. You're going to want to make sure your family's okay. You don't go leave and try to save the guy. No, you stay there. And he left. He just freaking left. Interesting. Like, for me, I interpreted it as um because they did have a little bit of a moment together um you know and, and shared a couple of drinks and you know that, that was the kind of worrisome of like are you okay to perform brain surgery right now because you've had it so that aspect was if anything the irresponsible part of it to me um the rest of it i took as you know he saw he saw the toughness of his entire family and as this we talked about it a little bit, little bit earlier, you know, whether Daisy, whether um, Theo, he now saw them as adults being able to handle themselves. And I think part of that resilience goes to the idea that no matter what happens in life, you do the right thing. And I think, you know, had he explained it to them, they would have been like, yeah, you got to go save his life. So I think he was acting on behalf of his own moral compass, which was essentially the family's moral compass by that point. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I'm, I mean, I can understand that, but I, I'm may, maybe that's just the me being a woman feeling for Daisy, going through a traumatic experience like that, and then just to see my father go off and be like, "Okay, you guys are good. He didn't hurt you, so I'm just gonna go away for a few hours. Um, but I'll come back." You know, I'm like, "No, you stay with the freaking family. You make sure that you guys are okay." That is literally a traumatic event that they're, they're just going to affect them for the rest of their lives. Come on. And he just left them. I, like, I'm more upset at the fact that he chose his job over his family in that particular moment. It, I don't look at it as like he chose his job. And he, I, I think the weight of what happened, he understands that it will affect his entire family. The difference is they can work on that. But the man, you know, the, this man needed to be saved. Right. So it was like, it was, that was a kind of lesser of two evils type of situation where he was like, 
if I don't go, this man dies. And I think his, in his heart of hearts, he felt like they would agree with him. Like that has to be Trump, all of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what makes writing amazing um, in general. And when, you know, you're, you force your main character into a choice that like neither is good. And this was certainly like, well, neither choice yes. is that great, is it? Right. I know, like as a neurosurgeon, I, I understand that he was the best person to to do this. But as a father, I don't know, there it crosses that fine line of being like, do you decide to be the doctor right now or do you decide to be a father? Um, I don't know. It's, yeah, I think it, it really just depends. As a woman, I don't know. It. I was more upset at the fact that he didn't stay with his family. Yeah, fair enough. They could have chose someone else. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly that's what uh, what makes it great to discuss. So, Let's, let's talk more about Daisy because through this thing, it's revealed that she is pregnant, which none of them knew. No. And, uh, you know, so that's another aspect that essentially has to not be dealt with. Dealt with is the wrong, terrible term, but, uh, <laughs> you know, as you said, it has to be discussed, right? <laughs> and this is right. new for them and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. How did you feel about the discovery that she is in fact, pregnant, and uh, that in spite of all that, you know, she takes the risk that she was willing to take and protected her family. Right. I mean, again, I felt for her because that was not the best reveal of, oh, hey, yeah, I'm also pregnant. Um, and I think it really goes to show the the kind of strained relationship she has with her her father. Um, again, we don't know like how long she's been pregnant. It can't can't could not have been that long if she wasn't like that obviously showing um but it was it was a very unfortunate way to for the family to learn um especially being stripped down that was a at, lot of like, against your will you know you yeah got your father injured you've got the 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 assailants you've got her naked and now she's also pre it's like what can i right i mean it, a lot happened. A lot happened, and like Daisy's gonna need some physical, like, like seriously, some therapy after. Um, I don't know. I fell for her. It was, it was not a great way to to tell the family that she that she's pregnant. Yeah, um, for sure, for sure. Um, and what do you think? Like, so once he does come back home, let, let's talk a little bit about the ending because it it is that sort of cyclical aspect right he begins mm -hmm. the day by having sex with his wife he ends the day with having sex like was it triumphant was it like because there was passion behind it certainly the second time right and i think with the first one when he had sex first thing in the morning that that like that was out of love and i felt like the sex at the end of the night after like oh my god we just died we we almost died kind of sex like can't say I've had that <laughs> so but I mean it, it, there's a whole nother connotation and reason behind the second time they had it like I think this was more like oh my god we almost just died let's enjoy each other right now because holy shit you know it, it was I, I think it happened to be like one of those like we're okay we have each other we're gonna be fine um. It was a nice bookend, but it, it 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 had a different meaning the second time around. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, that's why I think it was chosen. Um, you know, the interesting part, so um, the author's name is Ian McEwen. Um, very early on, when he started writing, his nickname became Ian McCobb. Because, uh, <laughs> as you can see, he goes pretty dark. Um, you know, I remember one of the first things that I actually knew him for. Did you ever um, watch The Good Son with Elijah Wood and McCoy? Yes. A story about kids. That's a dark story. Very dark. He wrote that. Also, also talking about decisions, like a hard decision. What do you do? Uh, yeah. Yes. I didn't realize that was him. Yes. Yeah, so that story is about um, Elijah Wood's character whose mom dies and then goes to stay with his cousin over a, a, some sort of Christmas holiday, wintry break. Um, his cousin is Macaulay Culkin, who is the um, devil incarnate. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a terror in that movie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we'll just leave it there. We, we don't need to spoil the movie, but um, right. but yeah, a lot of uh, certainly a hard decision need, needed to be made by the end. Um, and Atonement was one of the first things that I read, but like after that, I read The Cement Garden, which was his first book, and The Comfort of Strangers, and both are very. Uh, Oh boy, like if you thought this was like really messed up, uh, I would say like the cement garden in particular really goes hmm. like as dark as I, I've known him to go. And, and certainly the comfort of strangers is, you know, the comfort of strangers is a very ironic term, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, I can imagine after I have reading, you know, read this book where like I was not comfortable with these strangers. So I can't imagine what that book has. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Let's, yeah, what did you think of his writing style overall? So this was the first book you read, correct, of his? Yes, of his, because I've only seen the feature films of his, you know, the adaptations of his books. Um, so I didn't know what to expect. It, I think I texted you at one point. I was like, oh, man, very long descriptive paragraphs, page long paragraphs. But um, I could definitely visualize what he's seeing. Um, I could literally go step by step what Henry's going through. Oh, he's on the train here, or he's playing squash here. He's talking to this person. He's walking on this street. Um, I can definitely visualize what's happening in this you, world. Uh, so if you ever read the atonement description when he's writing the letter to Cecilia, which minor spoiler alert, he writes, yeah. In my dreams I kiss your cunt. So Yeah. That gets very visual. Yeah, very visual, very descriptive. Uh, it like I, I do have to applaud him. Like I could clearly understand the world in which these characters were. So, um, granted, it, it did get uh, I feel a little superfluous here and there. It's like okay, I I think I only need like one or two descriptions to understand what situation they're in. I mean, again, like fifteen paragraphs or like fifteen pages. On one squash match, I'm like, oh my god, move on. Like, this is what editing is for. But you know, I understood you have to set the scene. It's interesting because, like, there's plenty of books that I read where, like, they try to describe whether it be a fight or what's happening, you know, just action in general, and they kind of do a piss poor job. Whereas here, for a game that I don't really know that much about, I mean, I understand like the basics of it, but I don't know the rules and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I like, however long it was, um, I did, I, I was sucked into it and maybe that's like the sports fan in me. I was like, yeah, beat his ass. <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, my thing was, it's just two people and, uh, I don't know anything about squash either. So I'm not even going to like pretend that I do. Um, but it's like 15 pages just seemed a little too much to it's like, Oh my God, it's a match. Is it really that important? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know for something that they do so regularly and they got so into it. Um, maybe it's just something. like tennis and, me- and and squash just never personally appealed to me. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but it's, I mean, it's no different than, you know, whether it be any of your like weekly stuff. I know for me, like with weekly pickup soccer, like it's pickup soccer, you know, right. it's in the league or whatever, but like, yeah, we get into it. Cause it's like, you just, that's all you got sort of thing, you know? <laughs> right. Of- no, I get it. I mean, I did pick up basketball and you can see people getting upset. Like, no, that's a foul, you know? So I get it. I get it. You get into the minutia of your game, but I don't know, maybe just being so naive to the sport. I was like, mm, is that really a big deal? This Will this really matter again in two days from now? No. No. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, for me, like, he is definitely one of, one of the things that I appreciate about him, for better or worse, is he has the ability to really magnify moments, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly, I mean, it's called Saturday. The whole book takes place on one particular day. And so he... He amplifies that to an nth degree, more so than his other books. But, um, but I do appreciate about that, right? And and it's an argument that I have with friends of mine about storytelling in general. When they give me feedback, they're like, "What if your story was this?" And I said, "Listen, that's not the intention. You have to give me notes based on the intention. Like, you know, you and I could have the same prompt of like, hey, write about um, four family members have to deal with uh, with the loss of a grandparent, right?" And you could choose to make it a 30 year sort of spanning story. Whereas for me, I'd be like, okay, they're going to go to the funeral. What are they like after the, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just choices. And um, again, for me overall, in general, I like what he does. And sometimes even in this book, like some things do succeed. Some things, you know, can be hit or miss. Right. Squash, Um, I did enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you enjoyed it. I didn't. I think it, it, it crossed the line where we were sucked in for too long. I was like, all right, how, how do we get, like, we're in the moment. How do we get out of it? And it didn't seem like it was ever going to end. It overstayed its welcome. Well, let's um, not overstay ours. Let's move on <laughs> to the new topic. So what did you think thematically, like, was the biggest sort of takeaway for me? I mean, there's there's a lot of things going on there whether it be rationalism, political engagement, you know, just the idea of happiness, family dynamics, uh, you know, morality in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the thing is, it's like, we see this, this man who sees a lot of different aspects of life in a course of a day. And I think uh, that's, that's very rare, actually, because, you know, some people can get like, so stuck in the personal schedule, like they do the same thing over and over and over and over again. They they interact with the same people over and over again. It's very like mundane in that way and predictable. 
And his day, admittedly not knowing who this character was, his day did become unpredictable, whereas doctor could just go to the hospital, do their shift, come back home. But this guy, like, he got in a car accident. He saw he saw a plane crash, car accident. He talked to this person. He played squash with this person. He went to the, his job. Then he saw his family. So, like, we saw a lot of different things within a course of day that would elicit a lot of different emotions. Um, and, like, I don't know how, I don't want to say normal, but, like, a regular person could handle a day like that or have the same type of reactions that he did does so again i applaud him in a way um there's there are some things that i didn't like the way he reacted but some things i did and uh, it's an interesting day um i do appreciate you bringing that up because you know certainly there are people in our lives that we know you know if, if they had to like if, if they had to go out and buy a band-aid because they had no band-aids like it would be the end of the world. <laughs> right. you know? um, and one aspect that we haven't yet talked about is he does visit um, his mother who is suffering from dementia. Um, so there's that aspect of it, which I don't know that it, it was out of all things, like a after getting a 15 page, you know, diatribe of squash, it felt this was very like, he went to visit her and that's it. <laughs> you know, right. I, I don't know if you had a different reading of it. No, I, I think um, us seeing that he visited his mother, he we can understand that his character has compassion for people who have deteriorating mental diseases um, compared to someone else who has never been through it, who has never witnessed, who might not have that compassion for someone who's struggling in that way. I, I mean, I don't want to contradict myself, but he could have been the best person that this whole Baxter situation happened to. Because if it was like another random person, again, it would not have ended the way it did. But because he is so passionate and he is so knowledgeable of mental diseases that he saw it and approached it in a different way. Um, yeah, and I, like, I also felt for his grandmother too, because dementia slowly just kills and takes away memories and takes away things that are important to people's lives. So it, it it was a nice, nice is not the best term, but it was a good precursor um, and kind of a setup for Henry to uh, deal with this future situation that will happen to him and his family. And I think too, like if, if there was any sort of takeaway, I think the big takeaway for me was that aspect, you know, he grappled with like, essentially, why do I come? It's not like she'll remember this, right? But it's at the end of the day, you know, no, she's my mother. It's the right thing to do. So I'm going to spend time with her, regardless of whether or not she remembers, if she remembers me. Um, so I think that does kind of solidify his moral stance in general about just life. Yeah, he's definitely more patient and compassionate to someone who's in that situation. Yeah, where even if other people don't see and recognize your actions your actions do have meaning sort of thing i think is ultimately the point and um i want to talk about his cooking because you know for as clinical as he is um he he's not obviously a professional chef but uh he does find joy and as i'll term it artistry through his cooking yeah i mean people can have another creative outlet just because 
he could be so clinical in one area, like maybe his cooking could be his quote unquote artistic side of him that he doesn't allow. Um, it's, it's a very healthy um, outlet for him to explore and, because cooking can be one of those things. It doesn't always have to be precise. It could be about feel, it could be about taste. It could be, be like, oh, this is how I'm feeling. Um, like, this is the the emotion that I'm feeling right now in, in these foods. Like, it doesn't have to be precise. And um, I think he likes that, the freedom that cooking can be compared to neurosurgeon. You're off by a millimeter and it could kill a patient, you know? So it's a, it's a different side of him. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a different side of him yeah so i did i did appreciate that like i mean again um i think for ian McEwen as an author i think the artistry is in the precision of weaving all these things into this tapestry and again for some people it can hit for some people it, it might not but I, I do always appreciate like it never feels like anything was put in randomly however random it might seem. Um, and now having read a few of his books, I think that's evident um, in a lot of his work. So I give him a lot of credit for the precision. And uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the neurosurgeon side of it, like he he legitimately just shadowed people. And, you know, uh, it has been said that people would puke after their first time. And <laughs> I don't know what this says about Ian McEwen, but he was just there with his notebook and did not react whatsoever. He is literally Henry, it seems like. Yeah. And, you know, everyone experiences situations different. You know, some are built for it. Some have to build up to the conditioning of it. And some just can take it, you know, or some are, some can't handle it at all. And I think uh, that Henry was just so used to it. Like he didn't bat an eye. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so as we wrap this up, um, obviously, you know, Ian McEwen's books, in and of them, I, I said uh, Atonement is very huge, but Amsterdam is also another one. I've not read that one, so I can't speak to it, but I have read Atonement. Um, it is as good as, you know, people make it out to be. Again, if you enjoyed this one, it's similar in style, right? Like, I think, as I said, he generally picks an event and then just tightens that wrench more and more on that singular event. Um, so if you like that, I would recommend you his other books. Um, but as, as we wrap this out, um, final thoughts that we might have not gotten to. Oh, no, I, th I think we hit it. I think it shows that for someone who could be so clinical, um, they can also be human in, in that aspect and it, I, I think it shows the character of a man or or woman whatever situation however they handle it and however they come out on the other side it's just a testament of their character um yeah, yeah. and you you've hinted at this but um you know we're 20 plus years removed from 9-11 from sort of that fear and certainly we're dealing with <laughs> all kinds of other goodies in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I say that ironically, of course, but um, you know, it is interesting to look back on that mentality and um, you know, understand that. Yeah. I think, you know, it, things are more complicated um, than sometimes we 
imagine, especially in our youth. Um, and that can be a hard pill to swallow, but at the same time, it's like, nothing's going to get better if we don't step up. Right. And I think if there is something that Henry does learn by the end, I think perhaps it is that, um, maybe not, but certainly that was my takeaway. So yeah, that with what you will audience. <laughs> um, all right. So we've got the holidays coming up and why not combine two of our favorite things? murder and the holidays yeah <laughs> why not um so this is my choice uh, it's hercule Poirot's christmas i mean it's agatha christie this is actually i think number 20 um but the very much agatha christie style like it um a lot of her stories are one-offs you know the very self-contained individualized um, kind of anthologies in that way so I don't think we're gonna get lost I haven't read the book yet I'm excited to um, but I love mystery I love the whodunits and her her styles like there's always like a million and a half characters who it could have been was it them was it not um, so it, that's the that's the adventure and the journey it's just figuring out who it could be um, it'll be fun yeah and uh, you know I Murder Mysteries is one of my favorite subgenres, um, so I'm looking forward to it as uh, Glass Onion, the Knives Out <laughs> movie. Yeah. So, um, it speaks well. See to how they run? That's... That yeah. was a good one. Um, and then in January, we're going to keep it pretty light. Um, the word for the world is Forest by Ursula Le Guin. Um, I think she is one of the greatest sci-fi writers in general, man, woman, any other gender and also very underrated and so i want to bring her to the forefront um she has the earth sea series which is touted as her best stuff um but rather than dive into that this is a standalone you know story it's literally like 170 pages um so um yeah that's what we'll be doing in january and it looks like we may have february lockdown as i'm saying in real time <laughs> <laughs> yeah um for february we'll read they both die at the end by Adam oh, alert. oh, oh <laughs> wait, wait, there's a preface what do they die we don't know this could be a complete red herring we don't know phil um so hopefully the, i've never read him but i've heard of this book uh and i hear good things about it so i, I think it'll be a good interesting read for us Stepped on that a little bit. That is, uh, they both die at the end by Adam Silvera. <laughs> yes, Adam Silvera. Cool. So, so yeah. what we got coming up in the next few months. As always, you know, comment with what you thought about our discussion. You know, anything that we might have missed that you want to dive deeper on, and also any uh, books that you're reading and uh, you know that you want us to read. We've gotten a few recommendations. I promise you, there are like. We can only do 12 a year at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're figuring out what to fit where in the best way that we can. But we do appreciate all of your responses. So keep them coming. They are they are uh, not for naught, as they say. <laughs> there you go. Um, and in the meantime, where can people wish you happy holidays? And, you know, anything of that nature. All that fun stuff. You can follow me at Serafini TV. And I'm at Phil Svitek, and uh, certainly Marissa loves getting the Christmas spirit. So uh, if you love Hallmark movies and uh, just holiday movies in general, she is the queen of that. So, you know, follow her on there. social media at Serafini TV. But with that, we 
are gonna end this day right here, right now. Bye.